Students who enter college without a preparation in effective learning strategies often do not persist to degree completion. In this episode, we discuss what incoming students should know to successfully navigate the college experience. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Todd Sakrizek. Todd is an associate research professor and associate director of a faculty development fellowship at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is also the director of four Lilly conferences on evidence-based teaching and learning. Todd is the author of many superb books. His most recent book is the third edition of The New Science of Learning, How to Learn in Harmony with Your Brain. Welcome back, Todd. Well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Today's teas are, Todd, I hear you have a surprise for us. Yeah, actually, I've got a bag of mystery tea. There's just a whole bunch of different teas in here, and they're little packets. So live and on the air, we shall open up one of the packets. There we go. I feel like we need like a drum roll. <laughs> need to. There we go. And now I am going to be having crystal clarity oolong tea to find a peaceful state of mind. Nice. Sounds like a good state of mind to be in. So it's a fermented tea. Apparently it is. Where is that from? This is from Portland, Oregon. Excellent. And I have a blueberry green tea from the Republic of Tea. And John, just because you were asking about it last time we recorded, I have my last cup of Yunnan jig just for you. Very good. I do not know why it's called Yunnan jig. <laughs> it's tasty. We've invited you here today to discuss the third edition of the New Science of Learning. Can you give us a little overview of the book? So the book is essentially a guide to help faculty and students to understand the learning process, but also just the whole college experience. Now, this is not a book that's like tips on how to study specifically. It's more of a global looking at teaching and learning. It does have tips in there too, and actually each chapter has a couple, but that's not the foundation of what I'm really after. For instance, the first chapter is about learning from multiple perspectives, and it talks about the dangers of dichotomous thinking too much in our society. It's either I like it, I don't like it, that's a good person, bad person, and gets away from that. And from there, there's sections in there on setting goals and self-regulation, monitoring how we interact with others and our work and self-efficacy, the extent to which we believe we can succeed at something. There are whole sections on helping to understand how people learn, finding patterns and what that does in our society, in our classes, and in our content. If we can find the patterns, we can learn a lot more easily. Bloom's Taxonomy and it has chapter in there in sleeping, the effects of not sleeping or how much it can help you when you do sleep and exercise and even has a chapter in there about how to work well in a group. So it's essentially kind of an overall book that helps students with the learning process or the college experience. The book is clearly a good resource for first-year students. That said, books often have more than one audience. Did you write this book for a broader audience or was it focused primarily on first-year students? It's always tricky writing a book. In my mind, at least, you have to have your audience in mind the whole time you're writing. That's the only way I can do it and write at a level that I think connects with the audience. So certainly 
first year students and more specifically like a first generation college student or a student from a marginalized group that doesn't have a lot of experience in their family with colleges. Because if you do, it's a very different experience than if you don't. So this is a resource for people who don't know the ins and outs. At the same time, there's a lot of material in here that faculty just don't know. And so some of the learning theories that are in here, some of the pattern recognition, some of the sleep research, the faculty don't know. So I tried to write it so that faculty would also find it interesting. And I tried to straddle that line, but I also tried to pull in what a senior in high school might find valuable. So a junior or senior in high school could read this and get a better sense of what they were going to experience in college. So I tried to do that. And then a general resource for anybody else in terms of people in student affairs or in a student success center. So I was looking at multiple audiences, started primarily with a student. But when I used examples and the level of writing, I tried to drift in and out so that I could get these other groups in such a way that they would find it valuable as well. I really enjoy the personalized conversational tone, which obviously is great for students. It hooks you right in and then goes into the introduction. And so I really enjoyed that style. Can you talk a little bit more about why you chose that style and how that might help students? For me, I just think conversation storytelling is one of the most effective ways of learning. And so I like to do that. I also like to bury things just a very little bit at the beginning. So you start to read and then you realize as it's unfolding. So for instance, in the first chapter, we're talking about the danger of dichotomous thinking. The example in the book was it's easy to tell night from day. If it's noon, we know it's day. And if it's midnight, we know it's night. But what happens just as the sun sets? There is a moment when the day stops and the night starts. And it's the edges like that where all the richness is. And then I think there's a line in the book that says, once we're going through that, like the day and the night and what's really at the edge, and it's like, we're not really talking about day and night here, are we? We're talking about people. And so that kind of concept that I really like in terms of keeping it conversational, keeping it tied to things that people know. But my whole goal and what I'm shooting for is to have people who can read science, but do it in a way that they enjoy it. Much of your book focuses on how we learn. Students come in with some serious misperceptions about how we learn. When students are asked how they study, they tend to read things repeatedly, where the evidence suggests that's not very effective. They tend to highlight quite a bit, which is also not very effective in increasing long-term recall or transferability. Why aren't students learning how to learn before they're, say, 18 or 19 years old or older? Shouldn't some of this instruction be taking place in earlier years of education? And why isn't this happening earlier? John, did you bring your soapbox with you today? (laughs) (laughs) It's an issue. I mean, it's a huge issue. We spend our whole time in our educational system teaching people stuff, how to do things and what things are. But it's crazy. We don't teach students how to learn. We treat it as if it's an implicit assumption that everybody just can learn, and to the extent we can. When we're young, we learn how to walk, and we learn how to use utensils, and we teach kids how to tie shoes, and children learn how to ride a bike. And so I think in the general framework, there's all this learning going on and teaching going on. And as a result, we have the implicit assumption that everybody can teach and everybody can learn. But teaching is a profession, and learning is really, really nuanced in a lot of different ways. And so what we have are a lot of implicit assumptions and trials and errors. If you think about for yourself, where did you actually learn how to learn? And for most individuals, it's around second or third grade, because that's when we start testing, which by the way, if you ask young, young children, do you like to learn and do you like school? They say yes to both of those until suddenly they start to say that they like to learn and they don't like school. And it's almost universally in the country around third grade. 
So right around third grade, we're starting to test, but we don't teach them how to learn at that moment. So the parents are making up flashcards and quizzing the kids and the kids are reading aloud in class. And we're going through these actions without knowing what we're doing. And it turns out, as you've already pointed out, John, very well, is that a lot of these things that we have implicit assumptions about, we're wrong. We're just wrong. And the trouble is we don't have a baseline. So if we start highlighting, if I highlight the chapter in the book and I get a good grade, then obviously highlighting must work. And if I'm underlining things and I get a decent grade, underlining must work. But how much could you have learned if you realized how to do that? Now, I've got students who will use five different colors to highlight. When I ask them why the different colors, they'll say the blue is if it's an application and the green is for vocabulary and the pink is something that's like really important. And I always love to tell them when they do that, you should use black for the stuff that's not important at all. Good times. But the idea is they're doing that. The students sometimes are doing their flashcards, but the question becomes like flashcards. When you're going through a deck of flashcards, when you get it right, do you set it off to the side or do you put it back in the deck? How do you do that? When you're learning something like chemistry, how do you learn those terms? When you're learning a periodic chart, how do you do that? And so I just firmly believe if we started teaching children how to learn at around second or third grade and just spent 1% of the time teaching the learning part and the rest of it all about content, by the time that they were done with school, they would be lifelong effective learners. And instead, we have people who believe that they have a given learning style, which we could do on a whole different show. People do have different ways in which they learn, but the concept of teaching to a given learning style has no data behind it. And highlighting, there's studies out there that says highlighting doesn't work and it doesn't work primarily. However, there are ways to highlight that are effective. Rereading is not effective unless you reread for a specific purpose or reread in a special way. And so this stuff is going on. And again, we're not teaching students how to learn, so we should do that. I've given presentations about how to learn to everyone from high school students up through professional schools, nursing programs, pharmacy programs, and medical schools. And the number of times that Someone in a medical school, a second year medical student will come up and say, I wish somebody had taught me this sooner. The case you'd think of is like the prototype of a student would be a med student who memorizes and learns stuff so fast. But those students who can pick up things quickly will say, I wish somebody had showed me how to pick it up even faster. So I think we should do that. Same with writing. We should teach students how to write instead of just having them write. There's a soapbox for you. (laughs) I mean, I'm on it too. (laughs) It's interesting that when I was thinking about your question and about like, when would I say that I started learning was actually when I started struggling. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Because when it wasn't hard, you could just skate by. But there was a moment and it was in sixth grade, I remember social studies, and I had a really hard time reading and reading comprehension. And then I had someone who actually had to read more effectively. And it worked immensely. But it was only because I had that intervention or that help because it wasn't part of the curriculum, it wasn't taught that I actually overcame that. But I think a lot of our students come to learning these strategies once they're struggling significantly to the point where they have to ask for help rather than us being proactive about it. Exactly. And I tell you, and it's in the book here too, is it's exactly what you said was my experience. I picked stuff up very, very quickly. I could skim a book and go in and take a test and do well. And I did that through high school. When I got to college, I had five classes. My first class that I got a grade back in It was like a D minus in the introduction to criminal justice class. And then I had a physics class in my first grade and that was an F. And I thought, well, well, that's not going well. And then in my math class, I got an F minus. And I remember thinking, well, it can't get any worse than this until I got my chemistry grade. And that was an F minus minus. I even went to the teacher and said, F minus minus. 
I don't understand this. And he said something like, given you received an F minus minus, it doesn't surprise me you failed to comprehend it. So a kind of mean person too. And the concept here, the reason I mentioned is what you just said, Rebecca, I hadn't learned how to learn. And so at the point where I needed to know how to learn, I was in a jam and I actually went to the registrar to get a drop slip. And she said, get your signatures and bring it back. I'll take care of it. This is a long time ago. And four of my five faculty members signed the slip. This was a very small school. This isn't some big school where you get lost at. This school only had like 200 faculty members and about 3,500 students. And the psych prof said, I don't understand what you're doing. Why would you drop out? This is like two months after I started. And I said, I just can't do it. I don't know how to do it. He said, you need to learn how to learn. I said, yeah, like you can learn how to learn. I didn't even know the concept existed. So He pointed out some strategies and pointed toward a book and I learned how to learn, but I was one signature away from not finishing. I wouldn't have met you. I wouldn't have done any of the books I've done. All of that would have not happened for one signature because nobody taught me how to learn. And a lot of our students get those last signatures and disappear. We're losing a lot of students once they hit that barrier, which is why it's important. We have books such as yours and we spend more time working on teaching students how to learn. And reading the book as part of our system. That's what we should do. If I'm doing a faculty workshop at a campus and I say, how many of you in here came within a whisper of flunking out of school? Most faculty raise their hands. And that's just amazing to me. Those are the folks that you would think got through easy. So it's what you just said, John. How many fabulous, wonderful people? They're probably doing things that are fine, but they're not doing what they wanted to do. And it's because of that. Yeah, we just need to design our systems to be proactive rather than reactive. And oftentimes it's not even reactive. We just miss the boat entirely. That's a good point. Instead of being reactive, we should be either proactive or at least not inactive. Yeah, (laughs) let's start with not inactive. Yeah, (laughs) That's a place to start. Part of the issue is that we ultimately figured it out on our own and we assume that Everyone can. And we're not a random group of the population. A very large share of faculty members were not first-generation students. A disproportionately large number of faculty members come from families where there were people with higher ed as part of their background. And it's easy to forget what sort of struggle students may face. Even if someone may have come close at one point, they figured it was an aberration. And they forget that those aberrations can be critical points for many people. And that these struggles happen across the spectrum. It's not just our undergraduate students. As you mentioned, our graduate students have some of the same struggles. I was just having a conversation with graduate students last week about even just basic time management skills or how to troubleshoot or problem solve because they don't have those skills and they need to build those skills. Yeah. And it's still also not equitable across different groups. Individuals from marginalized groups tend to fail more frequently because they don't have the resources and they don't have that support system so that when they are struggling, somebody can help them. So the first edition of this book was released in 2013. How does this third edition differ from these earlier editions? Actually, in a lot of ways, when we wrote the book in 2013, first of all, the research has changed considerably, but the book ended up also being just a hair over 100 pages. And this new version's about 250, 260 pages. So it has grown substantially. There's sections of the book that were not in the original book or not even in the second edition. So there was the whole section on how to learn in groups. There's a section in our pitfalls, the places where students tend to have problems, hidden curriculum kind of issues. What are things that they're not specifically stated? And so they're implied in a way that if you know that they exist or you had family members who went to college, you can figure it out. But if you've never gone to college, you didn't know. I didn't know when I went to college that if you failed a class, you could retake the course later. 
And so I thought when I failed my chemistry class that I was literally done because if you can't pass, then I can't get into Chem 2. If I can't get into Chem 2, I can't go. And when I talked to my advisor, the advisor says, well, just take a trailer course. And I said, what is this thing you call a trailer course? So those types of things are in this edition of the book. So I picked up a lot more nuances than we had before. And of course, I mentioned a little bit earlier too, but the research has changed significantly in the last 10 years. We know a lot more now about how we learn than we did 10 years ago. And for things as subtle as what's happening while you sleep. And so it's getting more and more that we know actually what kinds of learning is being solidified at different stages of sleep. So there's always changing research, and I'm just happy to be able to get that updated research in there. I love that you just slipped in something about sleep because I was just going to ask about sleep. I was just having a conversation with a colleague today about being able to process new information when you're tired and that we might typically think of processing being associated with a learning disability or something, but actually lack of sleep can cause the same kinds of symptoms, essentially. And so I can imagine that actually talking about sleep is an easy sell for students because it's something that everyone can easily think about, but many of them don't get. Can you share a little bit of insight into sleep and learning? Certainly. And this is one of those areas that we all know that it's harder when you're exhausted to do something than when you're rested, but back to the dichotomous thinking. We think oftentimes in terms of I'm exhausted and I'm rested, but what about all those nuances in between? What if you normally like to get seven and a half, eight hours of sleep and you get six and a half hours? You feel okay, but what we know now from the way people learn is that you're still going to be learning at a less effective level. And if you're exhausted, you get to a point very easily where you can't learn at all. And so we know that in terms of encoding the information, you need to be able to process the information in your environment, which happens when you get sleep. So that's important. And we know that nobody wakes up after a terrible night of sleep and says, whew, I feel great. I look great. And I'm learning like crazy. We know it's going to be a rough day. And so that fatigue makes it hard to learn. And then what we also know about sleep, which is fascinating to me, is while you sleep, a lot of consolidation happens, called consolidation. And if it doesn't happen, the information is gone typically in about 24 or 48 hours. And so what we have are students who, for instance, will study all night and they can go in and take the test. They do okay on the test. So they think, hmm, this is an okay way to learn. And then they don't realize that the material is pretty well gone in two days, three max. And then later when they need the material, Material. If let's just say for the comprehensive final, the instructor says, well, everybody, I hope you're studying because this final is going to be tough. Now I go to learn for the final. I flunk the final. Most students don't say, oh, I'll bet that's because when I learned, I didn't get stage four sleep, which consolidated the information and therefore made it available for me to relearn it at a faster pace for the final. No, they come back with a, wow, that was a really hard final. So that's going on all the time. But sleep is probably right up there at the top of one of the things you can do to learn more effectively is to sleep well. Yeah. So many of our students don't sleep. And we inevitably are probably teaching a class full of students who haven't had a lot of sleep. Yeah. And it's for the public service announcement. We got to put it out there because the sleep is important in terms of learning. But there are so many things that are tied to lack of sleep that's just incredible diabetes, even cancer, weight gain, high blood pressure, all these things. There's just tons of stuff. Your skin actually looks worse. There's so many things that are tied to a good night of sleep. It's when all the restorative stuff happens. So I'm going to tell you, the listeners, the folks who say, yeah, I know I'm exhausted. I can't get my sleep. 
it's damaging to a person to not get sleep. And when somebody says, well, yeah, but I got so much to do, just keep in mind that it will take a toll. And oftentimes, and this is an important one, if you get a rest or get some extra sleep, you'll do other things so much more effectively that you come out ahead and don't have the health issues. And this is really important to convey to students. And I do share this information with students in my classes. I don't always practice it myself, unfortunately, but I do share the information. And when they see results on how much more they recall when they're well-rested, at least they claim it will have a bit of an effect on them in the future. But one of the things, this is more on the faculty side rather than the student side, but so many of our classes are designed in such a way so that faculty are using high-stakes exams Students have a lot of incentive to pram the night before a test, and it does have that immediate payoff of increasing their short-term recall. And then since they're worried about the grade, they don't necessarily care about how much they recall until they get to their next high-stakes activity, and then they have to go through the whole process again. And maybe this is something that faculty should work on, too, in terms of reducing the number of high-stakes activities, reducing the incentives for students to cram and to cut back on their sleep. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. In fact, there's several things that we can do to impact the student's sleep. When I mention the importance of sleep to faculty at times, they'll say, well, I can't make them sleep. And oftentimes my response is no, but you can keep them up. If you have a high-stakes exam... And it's like a midterm and a final. It's human behavior. People are going to wait toward the end to do it. I know there's some faculty out there listening who say, I do everything early, and that's great. But I can tell you, I've been on a lot of committees with my colleagues where we turned reports in at the very last minute, or somebody handed me their portion at the last minute. So it is going to happen. If we know students are going to wait toward the last minute to do it, it's what you just said, John. I think it's a good point. If it's a huge exam, it means they're going to be up, maybe even for multiple nights. If it's a big paper, they're probably going to spend all night writing it, maybe two days, and might get a little bit of sleep, but they're going to be tired. If you have the paper due on like Monday at noon, they've now got exhausted from Sunday night. They're going to be tired all week. If you could make your paper due on Friday afternoon at like two, if they stay up all Thursday night, now they're exhausted, but they're exhausted going into a weekend. So a lot of little things we can do. I have a friend, Howard Aldrich at UNC. He had a nine o'clock class, 9 a.m., He had the papers due at class time in the morning. Then he and I were chatting, and with Sakai, you can see what time's papers are turned in. So we were looking, and the students were turning in the papers, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, even at 8 o'clock in the morning, and he knew that they stayed up to do it. So he changed his deadline to 9 p.m. with a 12-hour extension if you asked for it. So if you can get a 12-hour extension from 9 p.m., takes you to 9 a.m., what he found was 86% of his students turned in the work by 9 p.m., So when that happens, we can't say they were awake, but we know that they weren't up doing his paper in the middle of the night. And so those are the kinds of things that we can do as faculty members. And I agree in terms of the high state tests, we can think through what are we doing that's actually going to be conducive to learning versus is going to make it hindrance. And if we say, well, it's their own fault, they shouldn't wait till the last minute. Why put them in that position? To be fair, though, to those faculty who do give high stakes exams, they often spend a lot of the time just lecturing in a monotone, which can facilitate sleep on the part of students, at least during their class time, which is a large share of the time that they're interacting with students. That's great. Yeah, I suppose they could get a little nap in during class. That could work. It's all about balance. It is balance, isn't it? That's a work sleep balance right there. I had an interesting conversation with students this week about perfectionism and procrastination, which also I think leads to sleep deprivation because of all the procrastination. And 
what I found in the conversation, students were being really authentic and open with me, was that they were so worried about their performance on things, even low stakes things, like these weren't big stakes kinds of things, but just so worried about their performance on something that they would wait to do it. But they'd spend all this energy and time worrying about it. And so we talked about how to actually take an assignment and then plan it and break it into smaller pieces. But I talked to the students about how to break it into smaller pieces so that there were times to get help they were so worried about not doing it well that they could build in time to get assistance and help. So I'll be interested to find out at the end of this week if they were going to try this strategy this week to see if it helped them. But it had never occurred to them to break it into these smaller pieces. Yeah. And what you just said, I think, is vital for anybody who's listening. It's all the stuff that never occurs to somebody. This is why individuals who go to therapists can gain so much as when the therapist says something, an individual says, I never thought of it like that. For students, let's look at your sleep. Just jot down on a scale of one to 10 in the morning. How did you feel about how much sleep you got? To what extent did you get a good night's sleep? And then at the end of the day, jot down on a scale of one to 10, how'd things go? And when they start to see that bad nights of sleep result in days that are not all that productive or work well, it's like, huh, I didn't know it was that related. Breaking things into tasks, I think is fabulous. And that's what this book is about too, is the concept of just showing them things and then having them be able to look at it and say, oh, I had never thought of that. And that's what's valuable. So I like what you're doing. But for those who procrastinate on coming up with the set of tasks to do, again, course design could resolve that a little bit by scaffolding the project so that students never have a huge chunk of work to do all at once. Yeah, I think that's good. And then the other one is a whole different program is ungrading. And if we can just remove some of the grading on some of these things, and there's faculty out there and myself included years ago who would say, well, if I don't grade it, if there's no grade, why would the students do it? And it turns out sometimes from what you had just said, if the students are so stressed about it, they spend all this extra time, you remove some of the high stakes aspects of it and they don't stress about it so much, but that is a problem. And I will tell you, it's not just the students. I was writing a blog and I have a person I turned the blog over to and Mackenzie, she's phenomenal. And she edits at the end. And I wanted to prove to her I was working on this one blog because I had told her I was going to get it. And then I kept getting busy with other things and I submitted it to her, but I planned on spending another three or four hours on it. She emailed me back and she said, this is so close to being done. Let me just edit it. And then you can take another look at it. Had she not said that I would have worked another probably four hours on this thing, half a day. And I think students are doing that at times too. I think they finish an assignment, it's good, and then they think, but I want it to be better. And so just clarity and helping to understand and building some structure into the course so they're not guessing. Take away the stuff that's just not necessary and let them focus their energy on the things that are necessary. Sometimes it means even pointing out something that's low stakes is actually low stakes. Yeah, I think that's really good. Signposting. So there's a terminology for you. Signposting is basically telling somebody what they're doing or what you're doing. So if I'm giving you feedback, I could just give you feedback. And we've had programs where at the end of the program, the students say, I'm not getting enough feedback. And so we all as faculty say, all right, anytime we give feedback, we're going to say, would you mind if I give you some feedback right now? Hey, would it be all right if I give you just a little bit of feedback? Do you have some time tomorrow for some feedback? And at the end of the semester, the response was too much feedback. We hadn't changed, but it's what you just said. Just let people know what's going on. One of the nice things about your book is that it's grounded in learning science, but it's really easy to read. One of the things we had trouble with in coming up with questions is there's so many things that we could discuss in this book that we thought we'd shift it back to you. What are two or three pieces of advice that you would recommend to students that might have the biggest impact on their learning? 
first of all, I appreciate the fact that you found it easy to read. And I have gotten that feedback from others too. It's called The Science of Learning. And I think that scares some people at times. This is not a dry book. I tried to make it conversational and folks say it's fairly easy to get through. And that's good. The couple things, we've already talked about sleep quite a bit. Sleep is just huge if we can help talk the students through sleep. The other one you had mentioned already is the cramming. The tricky spot with cramming is not necessarily that the students want to do it. They are reinforced for it. I consider this to be one of the biggest traps in higher education because the research suggests that if I cram all night long, don't sleep, study all night long, and if you sleep for six or seven hours, I may very well outscore you by two or three percentage points, just enough that I do fine and it looks like that's okay. And you've already mentioned that a couple days later and the information's gone, the students don't realize, sometimes they know it's gone later, but they don't generally know that it's going to go away at the extent that it does. What they know is they've studied, they did well on the test, and therefore they're doing okay in the class. So a couple of things in the book. If we could help them understand how much damage comes with cramming, it would be huge. In fact, it's in the book like five times to the point where the editor said, do you know you've already talked about this like four times? And I said, yep. With any luck, we'll only do it once more, (laughs) but it's that important. So that's a big one. The other thing that I think is really huge is if we could help students with understanding metacognition. The concept here is knowing when you know or understanding your learning process. And it's something that we don't monitor, but we could. When you sit down to study, jot down how long you think it's going to take you to read the chapter. When you're done reading the chapter, jot down how you felt it went. Jot down a couple of notes of what you learned. As you're reading, stop every couple of paragraphs and just look away from the book and think, what am I reading right now? Because your mind will start to wander and you not realize it. Everybody that I know has read a chapter or read an article and either the next morning didn't remember if they had read it or not, or even when they finished, they thought to themselves, well, I don't remember anything about that. I was thinking about bacon the entire time. And so that concept of just knowing when you're processing. So metacognition is big. The sleeping stuff and cramming is big. And the last thing I'd say, there are lots of things in there, but just understanding Bloom's taxonomy, understanding at what level you know something. I like to use this as a quick example. I'm from Michigan. You could teach your students that there are five Great Lakes. Imagine they don't know any of this. There are five Great Lakes here on Ontario, Michigan, Erie, Superior, homes, right? And we could say Superior is the deepest. I can come back with a quiz two days later and say, which of these lakes is the biggest, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, or Superior? And the students could say Superior. At this moment, I don't know for sure if the students know what a lake is. I ask them, these are five things called lakes. This one's the deepest. Later, I say, of these things called lakes, which is the deepest? They've memorized it. If students know at that moment they're just functioning at the recall level, it helps them. And it's because when they take tests, they start to understand, I'm doing well on recall and understanding, I'm not doing well on application. So knowing blooms, knowing metacognition, understanding the sleep thing, and then exercise is huge. There's all kinds of research out there that says if you're actually getting your heart rate up 15, 20 minutes a day, it does all kinds of cool things for your brain and actually makes learning easier. So that's just a couple of them. So in the description of your book, you indicate that there's an instructor's manual that accompanies the text, and often this is not the case. So can you talk a little bit about what's included in the manual? Yeah. So when I was writing the book, the first and second editions didn't have this, and other books of this ilk don't tend to have it, the first year common reads and the first year experience books. But I wrote an instructor's manual when I was early career faculty member, and I wrote it for an introductory psychology book. 
all textbooks have instructor's manuals now. So I thought, why should this book not be just as good as those? So when I was done, I kept right on writing and I've written an instructor's manual, which ironically is about as long as the first edition of this book. So what I did is for each chapter, I understand that if you're going to use this book in your classes, you may not have time to read things very, very carefully. You might have to skim a chapter at times. So each chapter has a summary. So in the instructor's manual that summarizes the major concepts in the chapter, every chapter has discussion questions at the end. So I put down, these are the types of things that students may very well say in the discussion questions. So that if you start a discussion, you're not stuck with a situation of asking the students to discuss. You show up in class and you think, hmm, I'm not sure what I would say about this. So I've given you a couple of things. There's also teaching tips in every chapter. And for each one of the teaching tips, I've got a short thing of these are the kinds of things that students should experience. And on top of that, every chapter also has active learning exercises. I'm big on the active learning. So it will say in the sleep chapter, here's like four different things you can do. And it sets it all up. It explains, here's what you tell students to do. Here's what you have them do. Here's how you report out. And so it's kind of a guide for active learning keyed to the book. And you can find this if you go to the Stylus Publishing website. You're actually not going to see it, unfortunately, if you go through Amazon, because that's not where it's listed. You have to get to the Stylus Publishing site, and then you can find it. And there is no charge for it. You just let them know that you're teaching a course, and they'll send it to you. And if you can't find it, I'm the only Todd Zakrizik in the world. So if you send me an email at toddzakrizik at gmail.com, then I will make sure that I'll get you connected to the person with the instructor's manual because we didn't make it real easy to find because we didn't necessarily think that the students should have the instructor's manual. So it's kind of buried in there a bit. And we'll include a link to your email in the show notes. Perfect. So can you share one of the examples of an active learning activity that you might do in relationship to the book? Oh, sure. The chapter on sleep. There's one activity that's kind of explained there for keeping a sleep activity log for a week. And it shows how to have students block off their time and then indicate whether or not things went well or didn't go well for them. And it helps them to find their ideal time. So I did this when I was an undergraduate. And it's fascinating because I found out that between 2 and 4 p.m. I'm practically worthless. But early, early in the morning, like at 6 to 8 a.m., if I do have to get up and do something, I was just really, really good. And I don't care for getting up early in the morning. So it was unfortunate, but that's what I found out. Another activity in there is called a snowball technique. And this particular one in the chapter on sleep was students are asked to think about things that help and hinder a good night of sleep for them. And then the snowball aspect of it is they talk to other students and then they learn one thing that helps and one thing that hinders sleep. And after you learn from five different people, you go back and sit down, you get into a small group, and then you discuss those, and then you report out kind of overall what are the general themes that you saw. So there are things like that. In the instructor's manual, they're described in like a half a page, so it doesn't take you very long to read through it and get a sense of what it looks like. And so it's there just to help you get your rolling. Sounds like it really reduces some cognitive load for faculty teaching these things. One of the issues that is tricky that we do have to be careful of is faculty are really, really busy. And I taught one time on a quarter system. So you had three quarters and I was on a five, five, five load with a total of nine new preps. So there were times that I was really struggling and running into class last minute. And I had multiple sections and everything. And it would have been really helpful to have a 750 word that I could read in five minutes summary of the chapter. So then I could talk to the students because I knew the content. I just had to make sure I knew what was in there. And then for an activity, sometimes drawing up an activity is not easy. If I could glance at one and, and get a sense of it, then I can do it. Same with the discussion questions. And so, yeah, 
busy folks and it's just to help them out when they get in a bit of a jam. That can be extremely helpful, especially with those sorts of teaching loads, which I've only experienced once or twice, but it's really challenging. You do what you do. Sounds terrifying. <laughs> it is not easy. It's not. In the last section of the book, a message from Dr. Z, you note several struggles you had in pursuing your own education. Why finish the book this way? Well, I'm really glad you asked that because the last section, students oftentimes won't read the things that are way at the end. I think the faculty are the same and I probably would have been the same too. But at the beginning of the book, I talked a little bit about some of the struggles that I had when I went to college, the almost flunking out and the fact that if one faculty member had decided to sign the form, I wouldn't have been writing this book. And so that's where it started. But I saved the message for the end. So there wasn't the end of the story. And so when you go back to the message from Dr. Z, that section starts with welcome to the end of the book. And it's essentially, let me tell you the rest of the story. And what I did from this is there's a great quote by E. McClellan basically says, it's attributed to him as there's a lot of variations, but it boils down to everyone's fighting a battle we know nothing about. Everyone's fighting a hard battle. It's worded different ways. But that's been really impactful for me because I think if everybody knew that everybody else was fighting a battle at any given moment, then we could have a little bit more patience with individuals. But we also could say, you know, they're getting through it. Maybe I can get through it, too. So I finished the book with just a real strong narrative in a sense that when I went through school as a first generation college student, I almost flunked out that first semester. If you almost flunk out the first semester, just keep moving forward. And I had to work a lot of jobs. I was exhausted, but I had no money. And so I was working all the time. And so if you're working all the time, you're going to be tired. Just keep moving forward. And I had a daughter when I was a graduate student and a graduate school is already hard enough until you have a child. And I almost quit graduate school because it was so hard to have a child and work in graduate school. So if that happens to you, keep going forward. And I almost ran out of money multiple times and I would have dropped out one time I probably stayed in school because of $100. And I do actually know a couple of programs now. There are a couple of institutions that will give up to $500 to a student. You just show up and say, look, I really need $200. And they find the students don't abuse the system. But you don't want someone to flunk out for $200. But in my case of the end of this book, it's like, if you're struggling with some money, just keep that in mind. And so I just want to tell you real quickly, I don't like to usually read these things, but just to give you the tone for the end. So I put this in there. I leave you with the following to consider in the months ahead. Be mindful of your past, but look to the future. Listen carefully to the voices of others and find respectful ways for your own voice to be heard. Find ways to get what you worked so hard for without taking anything away from anyone else. Most importantly, always strive for more so that you have more to share ever forward. So that's the tone I want to leave the students with. We're all struggling at times and it's not going to be easy, but if you just keep moving forward, we can make it. Speaking of moving forward, you've been doing a lot of writing. Five books in the last five years. Are there more books coming? Are you going to take a break? Like, what is going on? So I have ADHD, which means I have spent my entire life with too many things just kind of banging around in my head. So it turns out that once I started really writing, I got a roll. I didn't write much in my career. It's funny, I haven't. And when I got rolling with some of the things, I've had so much fun. And so, yeah, the five books in the last five years, I have another book that probably will be done in the next couple of months. And that one's on helping new faculty to get rolling. And then I have another book that's already signed and that's dealing with more with a kind of a longitudinal how we learn and kind of walking through the learning process in a different way, which is cool. And I got to tell you, I've known y'all for a while there, but I'm really thinking that I need to write a book that I'm so excited about. It's basically Dr. Z's crazy stories. <laughs> it's stuff that 
I have kind of gone through in my life and it's what I've learned from it. So I had a student who had a grand mal seizure in my class one time. I have had all kinds of issues. Lots of things have happened. And I think that there's some stories in there that I could kind of tell because I do love telling stories and that would help faculty. If I say, here's how I handled this thing and here's what I faced, my goal would be almost the same as the end for the letters to Dr. Z for students. It'd be for faculty members of some crazy, crazy stuff's going to happen to you. And there's ways of getting through that. Dr. Z's case studies. Yeah, that would be fun, wouldn't it? You might want to make that unreadable, though, by grad students until they've already started their careers, because otherwise some people might decide to back away. No, 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 John, they're going to find out that we get through with these things. And there's also some really fun stuff that happens, too. So that's all good. You know, that's all right. You know, maybe we don't show it to grad students. That's a good point. I was trying to defend a position. I was trying to defend an indefensible. Grad students are already struggling often, so it may be best to wait until they've at least started. Yeah, New that's title, a good one. Dr. Z's Survival Tales. Oh, <laughs> got a sight on that one. That's good. That's probably <laughs> a better way to go with that. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? The book I just mentioned, what's next? And I'm actually looking forward to getting back on the road. So kind of the what's next is because of COVID and everything, I hadn't gone and done many workshops at campuses. And I love to do that. I've been on like 300 campuses. So it's just fun visiting places. So I do have a couple of places that I'm heading to. I was just at Anchorage, Alaska, and that was really fun. And you find yourself in Anchorage, Alaska, and a couple of days later, you're in Florida. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But I love looking at different places and traveling. So it's been great. So the next is I'm getting a chance to travel again. So you're getting close on your 50 states? Oh, we have talked about this in the past. I'm going to come back with my pleading of the listeners once again. I have been stuck at 49 states for about eight years. I hit my 49th state, I think it was seven or eight years ago, which I believe was Vermont. It was Vermont or New Hampshire. The order was really close. But North Dakota, it continues to be elusive. North Dakota and Montana were the last two states in which an episode of our podcast were downloaded six or seven years ago when we first got started. It's interesting. I don't think there's too many colleges there. No, there are not many colleges there, but I'm glad you'd ask that, Rebecca. This is crazy because, again, if Tim Sawyer had signed that form, I never let that go. Is because anyone listening right now, you never know when you're the person who could say, you know what, I'm going to choose something different than just letting you go. It's a big responsibility, but there's times where a single sentence will change a student's life. And so I can't believe it when he said that, but I have now been invited to and presented in 49 states, 12 countries and four continents. Just amazing. And I would feel better if North Dakota would just call me. That would be so nice. The last continent might be tough. Yeah, there's one continent that's really tricky to get a gig in. It could happen. It'd be helpful if there are people who live there. <laughs> the penguins just are not yeah. that impressed. You I mean, you just invite yourself. <laughs> See, that was the rule, by the way. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, the rule was you had to be invited, so you can't just show up someplace and start talking. Well, we look forward to keeping tabs on your 49 states <laughs> next time we talk to you. It's always a pleasure, Todd. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to come. And if I get the 50th state, I will give you a call and maybe we can do a show about my 50th state. <laughs> and I think sometime before that might be nice as well. Wow. There's a little pessimist <laughs> for you. Whoa. Well, that may take a year Gosh, or two. John, this, Rebecca, <laughs> That's tough. That's brutal. All right. I was thinking it was going to come soon, Todd. Sorry. All right. This is a mic drop time. Why don't you go ahead and do the outro at this point? <laughs> <laughs> If you've enjoyed this podcast, 
please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.